Welcome, everybody, to uh, our sessions podcast. I'm Rob Gent, Chief Clinical Officer of Embark. Just super elated and privileged to have our guest today is Scott D. Miller. We could sing his accolades all day long, but uh, really, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. I know I'm looking forward to uh, us doing some work later on in the year with you. But yeah. uh, yeah, so thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Great. So just a little bit about Scott. Scott and his colleagues have significantly influenced, and dare I say transformed, the way that psychotherapy and psychotherapists assess effectiveness for client outcomes. Him and his colleagues have used the data and developed methodology to inform therapists how to become more effective. How am I doing with that, Scott? That's good. Great. Awesome. Yes, Scott is widely known for his expertise. He's he's widely known for his speaking and teaching ability. He has a ton of resources. I mean, Scott has been doing this for a while and has made it his purpose and his mission. And uh, he's certainly known for his profound cr- critical thought. If you guys have read his resources and his books, you'll know that his, his team and him have done their due diligence to think critically about everything and uh, really look at the data and help us as therapists and as clients really make some movement. So we could talk about all that, but what I wanted to do is have a personal conversation with Scott to get to know his story. Is that okay? Great. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Well, I've got to be honest. I'm looking into Scott, and uh, I've known about him over the years as a psychotherapist, and Knowing this thing, what is feedback and trauma treatment? Let's look at the data. What are we really doing? And personally, I bought his book, a few of his books uh, early on, and then recently his new book, Better Results, Using Deliberate Practice. And of course, being in charge of we want to do better supervision and do this, deliberate practice came screaming out at me and like, yeah, what can we do? What is this thing we call deliberate practice? So that initially caught my attention. And then this is where I have to be honest. Scott's book a, called Staying on Top and Keeping the Sand Out of Your Pants, A Surfer's Guide to the Good Life is what really roped me in, Scott. <laughs> well, and I know from one surfer to the next how important a part of my life surfing has been. Well, me and Scott briefly got a chance to talk about it, and uh, it from that conversation, I, I was hooked. So from, from one surfer to the next, we had a wonderful conversation about, oh, how long? Where have you from? Oh, I grew up in California. So did I. We had this wonderful engagement. So we've had a little bit of correspondence regarding that. So mm. kin, kindred spirits, Scott, when it That's comes right. to surfing. That's right. It was really enjoyable to catch up around that. Usually I'm asked about psychotherapy research. You and I got <laughs> to chat about uh, surf spots around California, And as you said, I grew up, I think, during the heyday, the best time to have surfed. Uh, And maybe I'm going to offend somebody by saying that, but I don't care. (laughs) The late 60s, early 70s, the beaches weren't crowded. You could go out in the morning, in the late afternoon, and the waves were great. It was it was a phenomenal childhood, actually. Well, I so appreciate that. Yeah, remind me, Scott, it was Southern California, correct? It was Southern California. Yeah, and we used to gas. I think was uh, I'm I'm embarrassed to say it was under a dollar a gallon, and it took us about maybe twenty minutes to drive from our home to the beach. We usually surfed in in at Newport Beach, mm-hmm. and 
nowadays that drive would probably take about 75 to 90 minutes to get from my home down down to the beach but we would beg for money my friends and i would drive down surf in the morning sit at the crab cooker and eat clam chowder and eat breadsticks because that's what we could afford and then we would go back out in the late afternoon after all what we disparagingly referred to as tourists uh, <laughs> went home and we would have sort of free uh freedom to do what we wanted on the waves without worrying about running our boards into somebody boy it's got to bring back a lot of memories for me i just i'm laughing about the crab cooker i've spent my time there and they've recently redone it they built another one's inland somewhere so that's great they did not yeah. as good but maybe it's just the atmosphere yeah. the environment was so cool inside and it just was a place to walk down in your board shorts and tank top and get some lunch and really on the cheap i, I i'm probably reminiscing too much here rob but i think i a bowl of clam chowder was a buck and you could eat as many breadsticks and these little bread balls as they as as you wanted uh and you know, filled you up and then you could go back and surf again. Once they uh, took the flags down, you could go up and surf uh, if, if from about four, four o'clock on without, without hindrance with the, with the sunbathers and swimmers. Yeah. So great, Scott. Now, now you need to have $50 in your pocket to do that exact same thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> and you, pay, you pay for parking and those little bread balls are, are, are super expensive now. So, uh, yeah, really yeah. great, Scott. Thank you. Well, I know you're currently stationed in Chicago. Is that correct? That's right. I've lived here since about 1993-94. Okay, terrific. And I imagine that's kind of a central location to get wherever you need to in the country pretty fast. You know, it's really facilitated my career, which right up into the pandemic, I was gone every week. I was on the road somewhere in the United States, in Asia or in Europe, traveling, teaching and consulting. And so being in Chicago meant that I could get anywhere in the States in a maximum of about four hours. I could get to Europe in eight. I could get to Australia and Asia in about 14 with a direct flight. So it really was a great place to be. And all of that was very serendipitous. A wave came by, so to speak, it happened to be a woman named Karen. And we hit it off. She lived here. I was working in Milwaukee at the time. And I decided I would move here to be with her. And it's really been a great, it's really been a great move. Yeah, terrific. Terrific. That's great to hear, Scott. Uh, your surfing probably suffers a little bit being in Chicago. You but... know, they do surf here. It's <laughs> not the same. And windsurfing is really quite big oh, yeah. south on the south part of Lake Michigan, given the winds. And there are some tributaries outside of Lake Michigan that people do a lot of parasailing and such. But board surfing, it's not going to be like it is in any of the beaches or in Hawaii. Yeah. Well, I wonder if the foiling's taken off a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The foil boards are quite the big thing now. You get a mix of surfing and foiling. It's really fascinating. I'm sure they're doing that there. But uh, So great, Scott. So if you don't mind, let's shift gears. It's interesting that you're in Chicago now. You've had this amazing career. If we don't mind kind of taking a step back, where where did that story really really begin for you? The story of? The story of you, right? Growing up in Southern California. I know I want to touch in. You've got this amazing story about uh being a Mormon and a chance to read that book. I'm just curious, like, where does it really start off? Any siblings? What's your parents like? <laughs> 
Well, I, I think I had a pretty uneventful and uh, normal childhood. I had a great family, parents and two uh, two brothers. I was right in the middle. When I went away to college and in my house, my father was a high school or rather a elementary school principal his entire life. Education was really an important thing in my household. If you did well in school, you could do just about anything else. They were very tolerant and forgiving people. So I knew college was uh, in my future on the radar. I left after graduating from Glendora High School, moved to go to college. And while I was there, originally I was going to be an accountant. And I sometimes joke that that's because my mother thought that at least I would be near money. I don't think she had any belief that I would be rich, but at least I could count other people's dough. I went for a year and I met a professor. His name, no relationship, was Hal Miller. He was a student from of Skinner's from Harvard. And really, I wanted to be Hal Miller. He was so interesting, so provocative, so free thinking, and so I became a research assistant as an undergraduate. At one point, he said, because he was a an experimental psychologist, and I thought that I would go and do a traditional teaching route, become a professor. He thought otherwise. He said that unless you scored on the top on your GREs, you got the best university context, that you were pretty much destined to make very little money and to have a long and difficult career publishing, seeking grants, et cetera. And he thought that I was well-suited for clinical work. So he sent me over to talk to another professor. His name was Michael Lambert. And Michael Lambert had really changed the arc of my life. He was a clinical psychologist. He was very interested in what made treatment work and particularly interested in identifying cases that were at risk for deterioration. Mm -hmm. And Michael and I remain friends to this particular day, even though I graduated uh, from my undergraduate school in 1980. So from there, I went with his help and advice to graduate school, and I've been driven by really one chief question, and that was, how could I be effective? And that's what's been the guiding influence during my entire career. I wasn't interested in specializing in one population or the next or a particular technique or not. I really want, and that's because I think I was a very anxious clinician. When I was in the room with people, I could definitely sense just how much they were struggling. In my own personal life, I'd not really struggled in the way that many of the people who came to see me as a practicum student or an intern seemed to be struggling. I wanted somebody to tell me what was it I was supposed to do in that room. And I have to say, quite often, I felt like I'd been ripped off in graduate school. I must have missed the day where they taught the secret about how all this worked. In addition, many of my fellow students around me seemed much more confident about how this was supposed to work. So that's still a driving influence in my professional career. It's what's driven really all, uh, with very few exceptions, all of my publications all of the teams that I've been a part of over the last 30 plus years of my career. Wow. Thanks for that, Scott. It sounds like 
you had some significant mentors in your life early on. Uh, it's amazing. And it, if I had any advice for anybody who was heading down the academic route, I would say relationships are much more important than books. Books are definitely important. Videos uh, that you want to learn from also important. But the people that I met along the way and that are still important relationships to me. I mentioned one, Michael Lambert, who was a pivotal person. Her, uh, Harold Miller, how, how Miller as I knew him, was another. Bruce Wampold, who was my stats professor in my first year of my graduate program. He and I still collaborate on publications. That's been an amazing and important resource. Scott, as a therapist, I, I'm, I'm so intrigued by this story. Hopefully many of us can resonate because you have this experience of the numbers being analytical, trying to search for some real noble, reliable, valid data in life. And then us as therapists, we tend to be high emotional, wanting to connect. And it sounds like here you are really trying to bridge that gap between those two things. I, I suppose I have tried to bridge that particular gap. The research literature, it's interesting, is massive. And yet most of us practitioners rely on someone to interpret it for us. Someone who might have an ideological slant to their work. I think as well, however, that many of us are looking for what to do. Truth be told, when I say that even after 30 years, when I'm sitting in the room with a person who's struggling, and I'm thinking in my head, even though uh, my exterior certainly communicates confidence, that I, I wonder what the hell I should do here. Mm -hmm. I guess another for, thing for me is that much of what our field has taught simply didn't ring true in the room. So there were lots of theories about what I was supposed to do, whether they were psychoanalytic, which they were for me in the beginning, or more recently, cognitive behavioral traditions. But all of that still seems not to really capture the essence of the work that we do. And plus, I've been really struck by research which indicates, and this is a very controversial thing, which is surprising to me, it's not even taught nowadays in graduate school, there is no difference in outcome between these various and competing treatment approaches. So what clinicians tend to do or what the field tends to do is either align with one or pick and choose and make some amalgamation that is used with clients on an ongoing basis. That's all perfectly fine until you confront literature, which indicates that therapist outcomes are no better. That is, experienced therapist outcomes are no better than students' outcomes. It's, it's also a challenge when you look at the data that shows that clinicians do not improve with time and experience in the, in the field, even though they think they do. So whether it's emotions or thoughts or models, et cetera, for me, the focus, again, comes back to how can I reliably show that the work I'm doing is helping more people? And that's why our team has really been at the forefront of saying, why not measure your results and be sure? And I promise you, it's going to be quite humbling as you do that, because you're going to find out very quickly that your mother was wrong about you. You're, you're not special. Uh, the average clinician, get this, multiple studies now show the average clinicians thinks that they are 
more effective than 80% of their peers. Well, just think about that. That's sort of like self-esteem on crack or something. <laughs> uh, it, it really doesn't line up with the data. So whether, again, it's emotions or thinking or models or math, what we have to do is know our work and know how effective we are, not just with this person in front of us, not with them just saying, oh, yes, I've been helped. Not with our model saying we're practicing in a theoretically or technically correct way, but when we crunch the numbers, they show that, in fact, we're helping people. And you have, and an, I, I can't emphasize this enough, that you've provided so much of your work has been about providing the resources to be able to effectively do that as a clinician. Well, thanks for that. Now, we we do make some very simple tools available on my website. We've done that since the measures were developed back in the late 90s uh, at the turn right at the turn of the millennium. And and believe me, this this was a journey for me professionally. I didn't start here. I tried to follow what the data said. So Anybody who knows my history as a practitioner knows that I moved from sunny Southern California to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, because I was in pursuit of a job and also somebody who would give me direct, specific guidance about what to do in the therapy room. I had the distinct honor and privilege of going to work at the Brief Family Therapy Center, where Steve DeShazer and Insu Berg worked, and together we worked on the solution-focused therapy model. And believe me, I got a lot more confidence in the room. I could do SFBT in my sleep backwards and forwards and in multiple languages. What, what happened though was researchers came and they studied our clients and they came back eventually to us and they said, there's good news and bad news. The good news was that what we did worked. The bad news was it didn't work anything any better than anything else. Mm. So there we were right back to the dilemma, because if you want to improve, you have to know what your data say and then look into the abyss. You have to look for where your traditional beliefs and practices fall short. So we left that, formed a different team, and we began looking for ways to figure out how could we be more effective. And in time, that led me back to two mentors of mine, first Michael Lambert and another one, Lynn Johnson. Michael was suggesting that, well, we may never find the right way to do treatment, this technique for that particular problem. But what we can know right now is whether or not we're helping this client by simply measuring. Lynn Johnson developed a, a, a measurement tool that allowed us to assess one of the key contributors to success establishing a good therapeutic alliance. And here's what's key. That therapeutic relationship, therapists' views of that relationship have historically correlated very low with the client's experience of the relationship. As a result, if you're in supervision with me, I don't really care what you think of the relationship because your view isn't predictive of whether the client stays in treatment or gets better. What I really care about is soliciting that information from the client and seeing if I can close the gap between what I'm thinking and experiencing and what the client wants from me. So together, we've called that feedback-informed treatment. Non-theoretical, non-ideological, doesn't matter whether you're psychoanalytic in orientation or you dig CBT or acceptance and commitment therapy. We can all measure our results at that moment with our client. 
By doing so, we can also identify those clients where we're not having an impact or making a connection. That improves probably what is the number one predictor of treatment results, which is therapist responsiveness to individual differences. So that's what feedback-informed care is really all about. So let me rewind a There's little bit. There's a lot in there, I know. Just yeah, sorry about that's that. That's the fire. No, no, it's so wonderful. Thank you, Scott, because just as a clinician, I'm trying to reflect on, well, I want to ask a few questions. One is, is to sort of reflect on and say, so what you're saying, Scott, is, is that my perception of the relationship with the client it is not connected to the outcomes as far as the client's perception of the relationship. Right. It's their view that's going to predict whether they stay or not. About one quarter of the people we work with drop out without experiencing any improvement. So a lot of those folks are dropping out because there isn't a sort of love connection. There isn't a sense of uh, felt empathy on the client's part. So I really, and given the historically low correlations in the research between therapist view of the relationship and clients view of the relationship, I really think I have to try to solicit that from them and keep my ideology out of it, that it's a distortion, that it's a sign of their pathology, however they may view it. If I want to rearrange the furniture, I have to be inside the client's house. Boy, that's a great analogy. So I can't help but ask, what is your hypothesis on, you've worked with so many therapists, and I think uh, the, the trends are saying is that we as therapists tend to overrate our perception of success. We tend to boil in all of this stuff. Scott, in all years' experience, why do you think that is? Why do you think that the therapist, naturally, we are inclined to tell ourselves that we're more effective than 80% of that, why, why do you think that happens? I, I think this is the result of a number of things, but it's really related to our latest work on deliberate practice. So this is simply the way we operate as a species. When we approach a new activity, whether, for example, it's learning therapy or driving a car, Initially, if you can remember back to your first experiences with a client or even role-playing in a practicum context with another student, you were highly conscious of everything that you did, every move you made, how long you had eye contact, how you're breathing, whether your legs were crossed or uh, your arms folded. You were aware of all of those things. In time, as you try to master therapy, those things become automatic. This is the language of deliberate practice. The more automatic they become, the more seamless they seem. And if there aren't major errors, like in driving a big car accident, or say in learning to walk, you're constantly falling down. If that doesn't happen, then we begin to assume a greater and greater ability than is actually the case. So I, th I think the reason why we do that is that it's simply human nature. We become proficient at an activity and the absence of large, gross, and catastrophic errors causes us to assume more ability than actually exists. And there's a big problem with that. Automaticity combined with that assumption leads to a lack of learning. After all, why would you need to learn anything new? Because you're already doing it relatively well. In addition, our continuing education system, the way it's structured and organized, facilitates that kind of belief. It doesn't challenge us. In fact, 
the data indicate that attending a continuing education workshop likely reinforces false assumptions therapists have about the breadth and depth of their skills and abilities. Think about that for a second. So what you're saying is sacrilege. Oh, my gosh. Right. I mean, is that how most people feel in many respects for average people coming through our door? It doesn't make any difference. If you're driving to the grocery store every day, you know, it probably doesn't make any difference. You don't have to be Mario Andretti in order to get there or some other highly skilled driver. However, since we're seeing clients year after year, the more automatic our thinking and skill execution is, the narrower that ability becomes with time and experience. The only way to countervene that is to begin to get feedback. So I have to measure and begin to show you where in fact your abilities break down. So for example, that you're not you're not in line with your client about goals or their sense of identity and preferences or about what exactly they were hoping for from you in the interaction. Feeding that back on an ongoing basis has a very predictable impact on automaticity. It makes us aware again of our behavior in the room, which gives us the ability to exercise influence over our behaviors. That is a very disruptive process. So people really don't like deliberate practice. They're infatuated with the concept right now, which we introduced to the field back in 2007 in an article called Super Shrinks, What's the Secret to Their Success? You can get that online. Just type in the title uh, for free uh, from, from my website, for example. Uh, and lots of people like that idea, but the reality of it is very different. There is a reason there are so few Olympic athletes. It's, it's not because of their natural ability. It's because pushing your performance a bit over time every day is painful and disruptive and time consuming. And being proficient most of the time is good enough. So how have you sort of been speaking to the... <laughs> average therapist talking about maybe the word dissonance or pressure between that comfort zone and that place of objectivity where we're looking at feedback, we're able to step out of our ego. Because even reading your books, especially your recent one, I'm thinking, wow, this was an ego pinch to me, right? I mean, oh, I'm married to my modality. I'm married to my intervention. I've spent so much time in trying to master this particular thing. And you're telling me, no, 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 no. That's less than what your modality intervention is less than 1% of the variance in this outcome client change. And Rob, your best chance of really making change is looking at the feedback. And that's really hard to do. How, how, do, how do most of us therapists wrestle with that where we're conscious or pre-consciously aware of this is an ego pinch. I mean, this is really hard. Yeah, I, I, I guess I would say that I truly believe in the depth of my soul that that therapists are a pretty smart group of people. And I've noticed that when I simply give them the information about this, when I start to say, when I start to acknowledge experiences in the consultant room, like I did earlier and say, geez, you know, I'm not sure I know what to do with this particular person, that a lot of people raise their hand and say, I have that experience multiple times per week. 
There are a few people on the margins who are ideological zealots. I do CBT and that's it. CBT solves all problems. Or EMDR is the thing that cures traumas. I see those people, and mostly I see them on social media, frankly. The average therapist in the room with a client, I think, does a honest effort to try to figure out how to accommodate the client. But to me, that's a little bit like a physician trying to guess your blood pressure by looking at you. Can it be done? Yeah, it, you can actually be trained to look for small signs. But it's much easier to put a cuff on and let the technology do it for you. So one step in this process, once you get beyond, so I, I think, as I say, therapists are a smart group. I just have to let them know about this. Most of them can identify. And their next question is, well, what do I do? What do I do about this? I say, you got to start to measure. And from here, therapists really need support because you're gonna get lots of information and you're not gonna know what to do with it at the moment. You're going to see a client who's telling you that, that, in fact, they don't experience you as aligned or empathizing with them or working on what they think is important. And it's not as easy as simply saying, well, I'll do what the client says. So there needs to be a supportive community around clinicians that are also using measures, integrating client feedback into their care. Once you do that, there's a whole nother step, and that's the step to deliberate practice, which means... Now, I'm not just trying to improve my responsiveness in the moment, which is a big challenge. Our clients are, thank goodness, increasingly diverse. They don't all look like me anymore. The therapy is having broad ranging, finally, a broad reach in our field. So that next step after that big challenge is to begin to look for the holes in my clinical work. Where is it I fall short? So does it happen to be with certain problems, depression versus substance abuse, people of a certain gender identification versus others? Is it because during certain times of the day, I'm more on than at other times of the day? I'm looking for those leverage points. Again, that takes time and cognitive effort. If you're seeing six to eight clients a day, the last thing you're going to want to do when you get home is spend time looking at your data and trying to develop strategies. Heck, I meet therapists nowadays that are so busy, they don't even read what they wrote in their clinical notes about the last visit before they meet with their client for the current visit. So that means that the ability to do deliver practice, spending the time mining our data, looking for those small objectives, getting the coaching that we might need around that particular objective from knowledgeable experts in the field, that's going to really even be a bigger challenge. And so once again, community is really going to be important. The second thing that's important is having a system. So anybody who's successful at deliver practice, they don't have a goal to deliberately practice. They have a system, for example, that's automatic. They do it at the same time every day. In fact, I think it's the, the creator, what is his name? Scott Adams, who created the cartoon Dilbert. He says, if you set goals, you, uh, you are always in a state of pre-success failure. If you simply have a system, I will do deliberate practice every morning from 7 until 7.30. You can measure your success by whether you followed through on that 
particular objective. So having a system makes it much easier to continue. And last but not least, what we call a census community. You need a group of people who are going to support you because deliberate practice is difficult and the amount of progress can be glacial. But the studies that we do have so far, and they're limited, but we do have a few, suggest, think about this, that when therapists engage in measurement of their results and then deliberate practice, the improvement they they achieve in over time is about the same that you see in Olympic athletes over time. It's small and consistent over time. So we're not talking about dramatic differences, but small, consistent differences over time that end up in the long run helping many more clients, which, as I say, has been my objective since I was a graduate student. Uh, Slow and steady wins the race. In the case of deliberate practice, that's absolutely. And slow and steady also means you need a cheerleading section and the right coaches telling you to move one foot in front of the other and to keep going. Absolutely. Well, Scott, I really appreciate this um, push towards creating a system and more importantly, having these coaches. I always like the definition of a coach. A coach highlights what we just can't see, right? Yeah, in, that's in exactly per- right. In our own performance. I mean, and how many of us, hey, I've been doing this for X amount of years. I've slipped into this automated way and like it or not, my perception, my experience in therapy might be just reinforcing to my own stuff. It, it absolutely will be. And I'd say, once again, let's look to a group that really does push themselves on an ongoing basis. That's Olympic athletes. Most Olympic athletes nowadays, and I would say professional athletes in basketball, football, et cetera, they don't have one coach. So I'm a big fan of female ice skating, mostly because for me, the combination of absolute athleticism with grace is like a combination that I find hard to look away from. Hmm. These female figure skaters have a coach for equipment. They have a coach for dress. They have a coach for upper body strength, for lower body strength, for choreography. It it goes on and on and on. What do therapists have? One supervisor. And usually it's low hanging fruit, meaning that it's the person next door, the person that you got assigned to. So I say, don't do that. And I, 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 not that I need to serve as an example, but Again, from the time I was an undergraduate, actually, I simply asked people for help. So I had a conversation with B.F. Skinner back in the 80s. It would have been early 80s when I had a challenging undergraduate course. It was probably more about 1979, actually. And I. we we had this ongoing correspondence. How did it start? I called him on the phone. He, he was amazingly friendly. And you won't know unless you pick up the phone. So I guess what I'm saying is don't just look for the person next door. Access to solid teachers is one of the distinguishing characteristics of successful deliberate practice. By achieving small gains in performance, it must open the door to newer, better, more knowledgeable teachers. You're really driving a point home for me, Scott, right now, is to just really, if we see it more objectively, just have the courage to reach out beyond our immediate supervision. Reach out. I mean, just like you're saying, I called B.F. Skinner up on the phone. I mean, who would think to do that, right? I mean, that's amazing. 
uh, all they can say is no. And I and I right. and I have been I have been turned down by 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 some people, but I find most of these people, if I can find an avenue to reach them, have been amazingly willing to talk with me. That's tremendous. I guess my question is, have have you always been so objective or it has it been a journey moving from into this really objectivity? Because I'm seeing this interesting relationship that for you, it's the more objective I can be, the more rewarding that is in some way. I I wouldn't call what I do objective. Uh, I would maybe call it quantifiable. Numbers are easy to make comparisons between. My internal sense can often be misleading. The numbers tell no lies once I begin to crunch those numbers and look at the difference between then and now. The other thing I think I am is driven. Hmm. Seated opposite people that I'm not helping bugs me. It bugs me deeply. I have a hard time letting it go. And I've never felt, my anxiety has never been mollified by attributing the difficulty to the client. So they're in denial, they're resistant, they, uh, they have X disorder, et cetera. It's not a very, it's personally a very unsatisfying uh, experience to me. I wanted to know what more could I do? How could I have a greater impact? How can I be have them be more engaged so that their lives can be better by the time they leave? Do I succeed all the time? Absolutely not. But that's my growth edge. Hmm. That's that's where I can learn something. Otherwise, I'm just doing what everybody has done and what I've always done. Can you put your finger on where that drive came from for you? I think this is uh, in nowadays in our current sort of postmodern society, it's going to sound very old fashioned. I'm interested in the truth. I'm not interested in anything but the truth. And that is unfortunately not, there isn't a direct route to that. So it means struggling. Well, and that, Somewhat flies in the face of our cultural <laughs> sort of cliches of truth is relative. Yeah, and it may be contextually relative, and it's certainly relative in the in the person's life. So that means I, I'm going to have to bend to accommodate other people's way of being in the room. That is in the service of a larger truth, which is connection and relationship is what leads to engagement. And engagement is the number one predictor of treatment outcome. So I don't see necessarily a, a, a contradiction between those two things. Because I, I think that I, well, it, that's just been the driving influence. I don't know what more to say about it. Well, I'm hearing and I just appreciate this so much that truth and engagement can go together. They don't need to be separate or conflicting is what you're saying. So I initially I was taught in a very analytic way. I then went and started working in a very solution focused way. (laughs) And that was the truth. We viewed every person who came in 
had unexplored exceptions and unimagined miracles. That was just the nature of the work. Was it the truth that that's what really made a difference? No. What really made a difference was that clients left the room hopeful and expecting something different. And that could be accomplished by any host of means, not just solution focused, but a host of other ways of working. So for example, we just finished a study where we were looking at people who went to see psychics. Did you know psychics have outcomes that are on par with therapist outcomes? And in some cases, even better? Well, I think it's because they accommodate clients' points of view in the service of engagement. Am I telling everybody to run out and buy a deck of tarot cards and a crystal ball? I think that would be being far too literal. What it really means is searching for that greater truth that indicates what is it that really helps people. Yeah. And th thanks to your book, I remember reading that about the psychics and I was like, oh my gosh. Again, it's that wanting to quantify and feeling value in that quantification of that. Um, one question I did have is that I noticed early on in your career, especially at Brief Solution focused, focusing on therapy, you worked with um, addicts or alcoholics and a homeless yeah. and underserved population. Yeah. How did that impact your trajectory or what was that like for, for <laughs> Scott, I'm wondering? Well, beginning to work with this group of folks was really an accident. I went back from my second year of graduate school thinking that I would pick up with my assistantship that paid for part of my college and housing that I'd had the prior year. I went in to see the professor, a very interesting guy named Tom Kale, and Tom said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I've come back to start the, my, my assistantship. He goes, well, I didn't think you wanted to. I said, well, why would you think that? Well, you didn't apply again. I said, I didn't know I had to apply. Oh, so I was, a, I was at pressure to find work very oh. quickly, and I took a, a job as a case manager at Weber County Drug and Alcohol, another very formulative experience. It was about an hour north of where I was going to university in Salt Lake City. And there I met a supervisor, Bern Vetter, who was a really amazing guy, very helpful person. And that's where I got to work with this population of folks, people with substance use issues and concerns. And I just thought it was great. I thought it was fantastic, and I didn't see a whole lot of difference between the struggles they had and the struggles everyone else had. So writing about that in the 1980s and 90s, when the dominant view was the Johnsonian intervention model and AA, and we were saying, well, you know, you really need to do that. Wow, was that, was that controversial? Very, yeah. It was very clear that while AA and the Johnsonian model, less so, helped some, that the need was far greater and that many people didn't get the help they needed from those. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to figure out how to help more people. So that's in part what led me to get hired at BFTC in Milwaukee with Stephen Insu. They were looking for somebody because the population of folks they were working with at the time, many of them, including homeless population, they had a project going, had problems with substances. And so I was just bringing my experience to the center when I started there. And I, what I really appreciate is you saying, hey, look, at it, it doesn't matter the population. 
it, are we willing to look at outcomes, feedback, informed treatment, and, and, and look at the effectiveness in this regardless? Sure. Party. And your knowledge about drugs and the lives of people who are uh, who who struggle because of those things, that knowledge is important, I think, not because it gives you some expert technique, but because it allows you to convey that you get it, that you understand the person and the situation that they find themselves in. So I would never poo-poo needing to learn a bit about drugs and alcohol, but especially the lived experience of the folks that have those particular concerns and are coming to you for help. Uh, but the claim that somehow this technique or that technique for this population will make you more effective, I, I just don't see the evidence of that. Uh, and plus, I, I think it's the 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 really the wrong approach to take. The question isn't what approach will help solve drug and alcohol problems. The question is, how can I gauge this person who happens to have those as problems? What can I do? And believe me, I'm willing to do almost anything to keep them engaged long enough that their life, well-being, and substance use improves. Yeah. So, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm hearing a tremendous amount of <laughs> compassion and empathy. Mm. And it's paired up with this sense of they're not mutually exclusive, but somehow how they complement each other is what well, you're saying. How are you going to improve your empathic engagement with somebody if you don't know when you're not doing it? Or when they're experiencing it. Yeah. For, it's, but yes, exactly. So that's that's the whole nature of this recursive feedback process. I've got to get the feedback from, from the person. And very often that reveals small blind spots of mine. Uh, that that I can then work with a coach, talk it through, role play, deliberately practice in an effort to widen my abilities to connect. A mentor, right? <laughs> uh, I would say Seek out a coaching. coach. Yeah. I would say a coach. I think mentors are fine. You know, you know, Michael and Bruce and Lynn Johnson, all of these people have been important mentors, but they're also very good at saying, this is not what I know best. So mm. let's get you to somebody else. That's what Hal Miller did. And, you know, thinking about you moving forward, I think you ought to go talk to Mike Lambert. It, it changed my life. Mike Lambert talking to me about which graduate school to go to and saying, here's a person who is on the cutting edge of statistical analysis. Maybe you think about going to that particular graduate school program. Lynn Johnson was the person who said, have you read Steve DeShazer's and Insu Berg's work. Have, have you read it? Uh, I, at the time, I, I, I hadn't. Well, you ought to read it. That led me, lo and behold, I reached out to Insu. And I had been up to uh, Nebraska to interview at the time with Bill O'Hanlon. Oh, wow. Wow. I met him at a conference. I said, can I come talk to you? He said, yeah. I sent an email to Insu, or maybe it was a call. I can't remember. And I said, hey, I'm going to go interview after for a job after graduate school in Omaha, Nebraska. That's where Bill was at the time. And she said, well, she says, before you agree to go work there, make sure you come see us. So this was all just about picking up the phone. Now, there were... I. I don't want to make it sound all all rosy because <laughs> when I moved from Southern California to Milwaukee, there were costs. Mm -hmm. So I went from a high paying job to a job that paid nearly nothing, but my student loans and outstanding debt were the same. <laughs> I was leaving behind a relationship because mm -hmm. the person that I was with at the time really 
could think of no good reason to live after <laughs> in being Wisconsin. in Palm Springs, moving to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So there were there were costs. I don't mean to imply such, but that comes back to my sort of driven nature. Uh, I was really interested in getting better and doing so by continuously questioning what was the truth about this. And then where does vision play a role for you? Because I am hearing this ability to delay gratification, to have some sort of vision. You, you use the term driven. I'm just, I wonder if those, those words are part of Scott Miller too. I, that is what's gratifying to me. Hmm. So I don't think I've delayed gratification as much as I identify gratification with improving my skills or abilities. And believe me, I, 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 I fall short in every way possible as a clinician still. Uh, but I find that process of exposing areas where I might improve deeply gratifying. That next objective, the next time that I call somebody on the phone and I say, here's what I'm trying to solve and address. So, for example, hey, Anders Ericsson is the researcher who coined the term deliberate practice. <laughs> and I had read somebody else's book, a general book about deliberate practice that had mentioned Erickson's work. I went and read most of it. And then I picked up the phone and I called him. And I said, we're really needing some coaching to do some research that's never been done in the field on this subject as applied to psychotherapy, uh, improvement as a psychotherapist. Anders Erickson said, sure. Shocking. Yeah. So, uh, and he coached. Uh, us for several years, right up to the first year of the pandemic, unfortunately died not from COVID uh, during the summer of 2020. It's a huge loss. And by that time, we'd been uh, in working with him for close to seven years. Wow. So, so, yeah. Well, having the courage to reach out. I, I, I'm really quite inspired. Thank you, Scott, for that. I, I, I got it. My Go pleasure. Ahead. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to ask. There's so much to uncover. I would love to do a part two because there's so much resource. I was just really blown away just even by looking at the ORS and the SRS, and you've set up primers and manuals and how to do this, and you've you've made it almost seamless for uh, an organization or a therapist by themselves, an outpatient therapist, whatever, to really engage in this process that you've described. You know, I, together with a team of great people, Cynthia Mayshock, uh, Suzanne Bargman, Brooke Matthews, uh, these Mark Hubble, these folks uh, have made all of that possible. And it's interesting because I, I think we share that common. If there is a vision, it's that common interest in how can we how can we get better? And I I I want to cut to the chase and get to the truth. Cut through all the falderall that is mm -hmm. commonly characteristic of our field. The the ideological commitments that don't have an empirical payoff. That's that's they they share that they share that passion. What what a wonderful support system in a team you've you have with you. Uh, just two more questions, Scott. I know you've published over twenty eight books and countless speaking engagements, and you, you just have all these resources. You've had such an amazing career. I don't know if you can boil it down, but when you think about all that, what 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 aspect of that has been most rewarding for you? I think it's eight or nine books, actually, not oh, not sorry. twenty. Uh, you know, there are several hundred research articles that have been been published, and you know, I've I've spent my life on the road, so hundreds and hundreds of presentations. Uh, the most rewarding project is the one I'm working on right now, and it's always that way. It's the being on the learning edge that is rewarding. Uh, 
And actually, once the book is done, I, I hate to say this, I'm no longer interested in the subject. typically. <laughs> so I'm on to sort of the, the next little area that we're trying to make clear, shine a light on, and then uh, resolve that next objective. Well, I really appreciate that. Uh, one of my patent questions that I love to ask, what part of your story is untold? I think I've been very fortunate that people have been willing to follow me on this journey. I mean, the team of people I work with, and as well as the tens of thousands of people I've met over the last 30 years while I'm training, that people sit in the audience and listen and ask questions and challenge. They email me, they comment on blog posts. So I don't feel like there's anything that is, that is, uh, un, what did you, what did you call it? Untold. Un, untold. Uh, that's, that's important, really. That's I like sushi. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to just communicate such a great appreciation because much like you, it took an email from me and Scott Miller's a real person. You responded to me. We were able to connect and uh, just so appreciative of our time together, Scott. So wonderful to learn about you and all that you've done in your practice. I really, really appreciate you. Take Thanks very much for that, Rob, for this opportunity to speak to you and to the people who listen to your podcast. Yeah, great. I do want to make a little plug. If it's uh, you're going to be at the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference That's uh, right. in, in December, and then you'll be one of the key presenters there. Um, and you'll be actually working with me. We're doing a pre-conference event, um, yeah. which I'm super excited about. So the listeners can look, look into that and uh, get to experience more of Scott D. Miller. Would love to see you at either or both. Oh, Fantastic. Well, Scott, thank you so much again. Appreciate it for your time. My pleasure. <laughs>